Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. For those listeners who may have trauma associated with conflict or violence, please be aware that this episode includes detailed discussions of wartime killing and of targeted airstrikes in particular. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Hello, and welcome to the Space Drink Podcast. It's been a long time since the last episode, for which I sincerely apologize. I actually recorded this months ago, but then life ran away with me and... Um, So thank you to all of you and especially to my guest for your patience. Since my last episode, my PhD thesis was submitted and passed with no corrections and it should be available on the Sydney University website for anyone interested in reading it really soon. So please, um, if you want to read it, keep an eye on my Twitter for updates. But of course, no pressure to read it. And now to the podcast. Wing Commander Duncan Blake spent 22 years as a legal officer in the Royal Australian Air Force, most recently in the Middle East, where he provided legal support to aerial targeting operations in Iraq and Syria. He served as the Deputy Director of Operations and International Law for the Australian Department of Defence, providing operations and international law advice and support at the highest levels within defence and across government. But those of you listening might know Duncan better from his work in international space law. Duncan is currently doing a PhD in space law through Adelaide University and is a driving force behind the Woomera Manual on International Law Applicable to Military Space Activities. He also teaches at UNSW Canberra. If you'd like to read more about his work or about him, you can find a link in the show notes. But today's discussion is actually less about space law in particular and more about the messy intersection between law and morality. What role does law have in violent conflict? How do decisions about drone strikes get made? Who gets to ask questions and under what circumstances? In a candid discussion, this podcast episode really challenged me to think differently about moral responsibility and the role of law. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's go. Okay. Ready? Yep. All right. Good day, Space Junkies. Welcome back to the Space Junk Podcast. It has been a while, but it is great to be back with you talking about all things space. And today I have a fantastic space law person to talk to you, but also we're going to talk a bit about morality and ethics 
and the place of law within those questions. And my guest today is Duncan Blake. Duncan, how are you? I'm very well. How are you, Andy? Um, I'm actually going really well. So I'm in Sydney and um, we, we our lockdown restrictions have lifted a bit, which means that today was my first time going to a cafe uh, mm. in a really long time. And it was delightful. But Duncan, for those of you who don't know you, and I think most Australian listeners and a lot of international listeners will know of you, could you describe in your own words what it is that you do? Uh, so currently I'm, I'm a lecturer and researcher at uh, University of New South Wales in Canberra, but I had 22 years as a military lawyer in the Australian Defence Force, the Air Force in particular. Um, I did a lot of what we call operations law, so law of armed conflict, or about killing people and breaking things, if you like. Um, and, and I continue to do that in a reserve capacity after 22 years as a permanent Air Force legal officer for, for defence. Um, so I, I do that part-time when I'm not a lecturer and researcher at UNSW Canberra. Uh, I, I occasionally do that in a commercial capacity as well, but, but not much of that. Um, so so that's, that's mostly what I do. So you spent 22 years doing this kind of role um, in a, I guess, a fairly full-on capacity. What got you interested in being a lawyer specialising in this kind of field? Yeah, um, so, uh, well, first of all, what, what got me interested in being a lawyer? I, you know, one, one account is that growing up, I argued a lot with my parents <laughs> and my parents told me, you know, if I was going to keep, keep arguing so much, then I ought to be a lawyer. And, I checked it out and it seemed like a good thing to me. So, so I, uh, I decided to do a law degree. But um, I did um, my law degree at University of Western Australia, which tends to have somewhat of a commercial focus. A lot of people from the University of Western Australia have gone into commercial areas of law. That really didn't appeal to me. Um, and at the time, there was conflict. There was the, the first Gulf War, if you want to call it the first Gulf War. There was um, strife in the form of Yugoslavia. And there were some really interesting things being said and happening in, in that context, including, for example, um, I think it was a Dutch battalion who reported that due to their rules of engagement, they couldn't intervene when um, women and children were being abused because their rules of engagement didn't allow that. And I thought, well, that, that, that doesn't sound right. This rules of engagement thing sounds really interesting. Um, and I had an uncle who was pretty high up. He was, in fact, um, the chief of defence force um, for, for a period. And so I, I learned about the opportunity to do what was called the undergraduate, undergraduate scheme, which is where they pay you to study, um, and so I got into the undergraduate scheme and, uh, and I thought it was a fantastic thing. It, it, it suits me a, a lot doing, doing law in this context. It's, it's a really interesting context in which to practice law. So for those of listeners who are not familiar, and I count myself among them, with how this kind of thing works, what is the role of a lawyer when you're in a conflict? Mm. So, uh, I mean, basically, military lawyers, there, there are said to be three core things that we do um, or areas of law in which we practice. One is discipline law. So it's criminal law in a, in a military context, if you like. 
Um, and and that's, that's important for operations. There's administrative law, which is procedural fairness, essentially, making sure that if you're going to decide on postings and promotions and courses for people in the military, that you do so on a fair basis. But I, I spent most of my time on operations law, which is about application of law of armed conflict, although there's a lot of other areas of law that potentially apply, like the United Nations law, status of forces agreements and things like that, that, are, that apply in the context of operations. Um, mm. and, and so in um, uh, probably a, a really good way to picture it, if, if somebody wants to, to do that, is go and watch the movie Eye in the Sky. Um, uh -huh. And... And in that particular movie, there's, um, you know, there's, there's a scene where the colonel calls in the legal officer. And so in a targeting context, um, you might call in the legal officer to, to clarify what are the rules of engagement for this circumstance. And the, the, the legal officers actually play a large part in actually developing the rules of engagement for, for a particular operation. Um, and in some scenarios, as in the eye in the sky scenario, um, the legal officers are called upon live in real time. In other scenarios, it's more uh, processes before targeting takes place. But, but that's the most sort of direct, um, if you like, the closest to the action that the, the, the legal officers are in a sense, but it's a lot of other things in, in Afghanistan, for example, it might be um, advising on detention um, mm. and, and the, the obligations that we have when we're detaining people uh, and advising on, on contracting and commercial stuff in, in, in the deployed environment. It could also um, involve things like naval gunfire support and um, you know anything the military does in an operational context potentially has legal implications and the lawyers are going to be there as well. Where does the legal question fit in with the strategic question? As a lawyer, did you get involved in strategy discussions? It, lawyers do get involved in, in the strategy discussions. Um, in the past, it used to be that um, the, the law and the lawyers were somewhat of an afterthought, uh, as in the lawyers would come in later and say, well, actually, um, you can't do this and you can't do that. Mm. Um, lawyers, lawyers were encouraged to be more proactive, and I think that's, that's a good thing. But it's, you might think, well, the contrast to what I just said before to something more proactive yeah. is the lawyers coming in and saying, well, actually give me a better idea of what you're trying to achieve and I'll tell you, you know, other ways that you could go about this to achieve this that is within the bounds of the law. And that's, that's good, but it's still not quite um, where we're at at the moment. So the position where we're at at the moment is the lawyers are much more integrated from the very beginning. So mm. there's, there's a discussion that is ongoing between operators and lawyers and the operators are trying to understand the legal constraints. The lawyers are under, trying to understand the operational context 
and um, trying to make sure that it's all going to work. But in the strategic context, so um, you have to understand a little bit of uh, military terminology. So the military makes a distinction between strategy on the one hand, operational art on the other, and tactics on the other. So tactics is about what you do in the context of a particular fight, the, the fight happening right now. The operational art is about um, coordinating a series of battles or, or fights. And then the strategy is about the ends or the, the, the objectives or goals of all of this. What are you trying to achieve? Mm. And so um, if your question is directed towards that, how are lawyers involved in the strategy? Well, uh, when the government um, decides that it wants to achieve its goals, by military means, and military means are not the only means to achieve its goals. It could be by diplomacy, economics, politics, by a variety of other means. But when it decides it wants to use military means, then um, the question that arises is, what is the legal context for that? Mm. Is it, for example, an armed conflict? And so therefore, do the, do the laws of armed conflict apply? Do we need to go to another country and seek um, rights to put our forces there to get host nation rights and basing rights in the host nation? If so, how would those host nation laws apply to us? Do we want to exempt or, or ask to exempt ourselves from some of those rights? And so one of those that is relevant to the space domain, for example, is the frequencies that you use in one country are not necessarily the frequencies that you use in another country. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to set up a satellite ground station for your military on a, on a base that you're setting up in another ground station, you have to say to that other, other nation, is it okay if we don't comply with your allocation of frequency, mm. or use our allocation of frequency, for example? Um, and, and so, yes, you need to understand what is the legal framework that is, is going to apply when the government makes a commitment to, to, um, to, to commit its, its military forces to a particular situation. It sounds like a highly technical position. It is. It, it can be really, really challenging. Um, so... Uh, on operations, for example, um, when you're advising a commander, you're trying to um, sort of intermesh or, or, or understand the application in lots of different areas of law, but to explain it to a commander who has very little time and, um, and lots of pressing requirements, so, so with maximum brevity. Mm. But you could be trying to deal with, on the one hand, the laws of armed conflict, on another hand, your own domestic laws like criminal laws and defence force discipline law. On the other, other hand, host nation laws, a status of forces agreement, a UN Security Council resolution, your own rules of engagement, the rules of engagement of coalition partners with which you're cooperating. And you're trying to think, well, how do those all relate to this particular scenario and then mm -hmm. to to give a commander you know a relatively simple response uh, I, I mean their ideal would be yes or no um, right that's that's not always possible but but we are, we aim for maximum brevity so I want to dig into this article that you wrote a few years ago 
which I think, full disclosure to any listeners, I think it's exceptional. I've read it many times um, over the years. I read it while I was writing my thesis. I've read it more recently. Every time I read it, I get something else out of it. So at the end of this podcast, please go away and read it or pause it now and read it if you want to follow along with us and know what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> my, my listeners know by now that I do not talk down to them. I expect them to do their readings before coming to class. Right. So the title of your paper that you wrote is, I am not a high priest in a secular military, exclamation point. Yes. Duncan, could you please explain what is this title? What were you trying to get across with this title? Where does this come from? Yes. What's going on here? This is not so, a legal paper like you normally see. No, no. So the, the first time I made that remark, I didn't think as deeply about it as I did when I subsequently wrote the paper. But when I first made the remark, it was on the margins of a conference, um, which a Canadian policy advisor was there. And he was talking about... Um, the, the role of lawyers uh, in, in the military context and, and, and the tendency some, sometimes for commanders to put too much emphasis on what the lawyer says. Mm. Uh, and, and sometimes it's used in, as, in, as an excuse. So, um, uh, you know, I disagree with the approach that, uh, that Secretary Donald Rumsfeld uh, took in respect of um, why he refused a strike against uh, Mullah Omar, I think it was, in Afghanistan um, in, in sometime in the 2010s. I can't remember exactly when. But um, he, he, his, his response was, um, the lawyers told me no, so I didn't. Whereas he could have embraced the reasons why the lawyers told him no. Mm -hmm. um, the, the reasons why the lawyers told him no was because of a proportionality assessment. The, there is a significant risk that we're going to kill a lot of civilians if we strike him at this time in, in this circumstance. Mm -hmm. um, so he could have embraced that, but instead he decided that the way he was going to tackle it is to say the lawyers said no. Um, so, you know, sometimes the lawyers can be treated as though they are the arbiters of what is right and wrong. And, mm. and I think that's that's not appropriate. Um, I would say that I am not a high priest in a secular military. The military is secular. Um, I, I, it was also a response to a, a, an experience that I had myself. So in 2003, we deployed to the Middle East. Um, if some of the listeners might recall that there was quite a lot of resistance um, back in Australia at the time in 2003 to that particular de deployment. And in mm -hmm. fact, a number of high profile people wrote letters or, or wrote a joint letter um, uh, sort of saying that, that they thought the government was doing the wrong thing. Um, one of the people who signed that letter was actually my uncle that I mentioned previously, a former chief of defence force, um, mm. who said he thinks we're doing the wrong thing, deploying um, to the Middle East to, to force um, Saddam Hussein's regime out of Iraq. Um, and so when I deployed, I had a couple of uh, troops come up to me and ask, are we doing the right thing? They felt a little uncomfortable. 
And my response was, was probably less eloquent than the way in which I wrote it in the paper, but it, something along the lines of, well, you know, I, I'm a lawyer. You don't, you don't need to ask me about whether something is right or wrong. I can tell you about what the law is. I can't tell you about whether it is right or wrong, um, which again is to say, don't put me in the position of being the high priest of a, a secular military. So that's that's the the impetus behind it. That's why I wrote it. That's a really useful background. And you talk in it about this idea, the question, right? If the lawyer is not responsible for determining right or wrong, which yeah. the lawyer can't be responsible for, because from a technical standpoint, as you say, you can say this is legal or this is not legal, potentially, mm. and you can have reasons underpinning that and weigh them up. But the moral question of, is this morally right? Is this morally wrong? Or in some broader ethical view or however you wanna frame it is not a technical question necessarily. And you write in this paper about how you felt there was a desire for this sense of absolution when yeah. you were working on this. Um, I'd like to dig more into it. So I'm wondering if you could just give us an example of the sort of, and, and feel free to, you know, I know you can't keep details, but feel free to, to make something up, some sort of um, <laughs> conglomeration of the whole thing. But yes. but what was the situation that you were being asked for this kind of sense of absolution when making these legal decisions? Uh, well, one scenario that I talk about in my paper. Um, so, when I was deployed in 2009, uh, I was at the headquarters that that we have in, in the that we had at the time in the Middle East, and um, there was a daily briefing in the morning. There's there's always a daily briefing. The daily briefing goes on over a lot of matters, including um, the intelligence officer getting up and and talking about um, the intelligence from the last 24 hours. And uh, the the intelligence officer got up and he said. Um, there are indications that the Taliban have, have learnt our rules of engagement or have deducted our rules of engagement because they've started using child soldiers. And I thought that was a kind of an odd thing to say, um, but I left it at first and then I came back to it later and I pointed out, well, the fact that they're using child soldiers, I, I don't see why that means that they've deduced our rules of engagement because our rules of engagement don't prevent us and nor does the law prevent us from shooting back against children. Um, there, there is nothing in any laws of, laws of armed conflict that say you, you can't shoot and kill children, mm. um, which is a shock, shocking thing to hear out loud, I know. Um, and when I said that, the, the J3, the J3 is a sort of military term for the person responsible for current operations, turned to me and I think in jest, said, you are the most evil legal officer I know. Um, of course, I, uh, I pointed out, well, look, I'm, I'm just saying what the law is. I'm not saying whether we should shoot child soldiers. Mm. But the point is that um, sometimes in the context of military operations, there are things that are pretty morally discomforting um, in what you do. And I mean, in, in my own experience, I was involved in, um, you know, live operations, seeing operations or targets that, that I had signed off on from a legal perspective. 
seeing the drum, the, the, the bombs drop, and one of the advantages of modern technology is you have these remotely piloted aircrafts that, um, that give you almost movie quality views of what's going on down below. So, you know, you conduct a strike, you, you proceed with a strike, and you see the impact that the strike has in a um, physical sense. And when I mean a physical sense, I mean on human bodies. Um, and so you see that there are bits of bodies strewn around afterwards. And, you know, sometimes they're even still writhing around, even when presumably the person is dead. So that's, that's pretty confronting. Um, and so you think about that sort of thing and you think about, well, who, who am I? What, what does this mean? for me. And uh, I would like to think, and I think most military people would like to think that, that there's a distinction between me and the common murderer. I am not a common murderer. And so the question is, is what, how, how, how am I different? What distinguishes me from the common murderer? And I would say that in large part, it's a commitment to the rule of law and, and things like the law of armed conflict. Although that can't be the whole of it, I, I would like to think that people don't just rely on the law. They have their innate sense of what is right or wrong wherever they find that. Um, because if they do just um, re rely on the rule of law, then essentially they, they put me up as a legal officer as the high priest of a secular military. Mm. And that's not my role. Thank you for sharing that. I remember I was in Canberra at a conference a few years ago that was held at ADFA and um, there was footage shown of a drone strike. Um, maybe it was even you giving the lecture, I don't remember. Someone was talking and um, there, was a, there was footage shown on the big screen of, okay, so let me talk you through what happens and here's right. how it goes down and now you can see that we're approaching and this is, and like someone was pointing out um, the like the, the people standing around and I, I think I, I think remembering back the scenario was that there was going to be some sort of um uh what's the word execution event happening in a main square right. and they were trying to kind of prevent this happening by targeting mm. various key people um mm. before this occurred but for someone who is not in the military who doesn't come across this there was something incredibly disturbing about it um, because you're you're watching real people in it wasn't real time but you can imagine that it would have been in real time as you say being killed um, mm. when when you went through this process you describe in the paper how there would be a discussion about okay so these are the potential targets we have and there'd be the intelligence officer who would provide their report about this is the reasoning we think that this person, should or could be a good target and then you would provide your sense on well is it a legal move to do right. so or not was there anyone else who had any input into that discussion there, there is a uh, large and, and complex process um, mm. I think I describe in the uh, in the paper how it's somewhat bureaucratized and there's a danger in a large complex bureaucratized process that people who might think of themselves as relatively small cogs in that particular process um, 
see that see it as a box ticking exercise uh and, and so an example might be and you know regardless of any comment about the extent to which this is true or not true or actually did happen or whatever um the it might be that the chain of command says well we need more targets we 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 need to pr prosecute this war quickly efficiently effectively it works out better for everyone if we do that so there's pressure on the process to produce more targets and that means um people who are involved in controlling intelligence sensors like a remotely piloted aircraft which is is used for intelligence surveillance reconnaissance not just in support of a strike but before the event and a variety of other sensors and they need to maybe as a matter of the bureaucratic process get you know three ticks in the box that say this source plus this source plus this source all indicate that this person is Taliban mm -hmm. right um so there is a danger that a person who does that simply ticks the three boxes without any thought about do, do those three things actually indicate that the person is a Taliban or is it just that I have I have got three sources you know, I've, I've ticked the box yes there are three sources um and and so you know I, I mean I guess I will say that there was um more than one occasion I won't say lots of occasions but more than one occasion where as a legal officer I, I was frustrated in reviewing the material and thinking you could have put more thought into this yes you've you've ticked all the boxes but um, it would be great if you'd put a bit more thought into this. Now, that that's not generally the case. I think it's mm. more often the case that it, there was a lot more thought into it. But that's that's the danger of a bureaucratic process. There's also um, questions about how you measure metrics. So there's this idea of proportionality, right? And mm. so... Um, Proportionality, the simplest way to do it is, is to think about, well, um, how many civilians might be killed? Uh, and uh, but, but the impact of war is greater than just how many civilians might be killed. Um, there are plenty of studies, for example, that, that show that the impact of war is far greater on women than it is on, on men, but that's the broader impacts after the conflict. Mm. Um, so how do you measure proportionality is, is one of the questions that, that goes back and forth in, in academics. Um, yeah, so, so, so these things are difficult. I think I've uh, lost the track of what you originally asked, but hopefully that's okay. Not to worry. I mean, I feel like I'm losing track too because I'm so fascinated in these questions. And it, it comes down to thinking about bureaucracy, thinking about institutionalization of of morality in a way. Mm. Stephen Shapin writes about this, and this is the bonus reading for this episode. Um, Stephen Shapin writes about how, especially with the development of the bomb in the kind of moving through the Second World War and into the post-war era um, through the Cold War, there's a sense in which scientists in particular, and, and Shapin's writing specifically about scientists here, were asked to provide their advice, provide their technical knowledge, 
but leave their sense of morality at the door is the way that Chapin kind of puts it. So, right. so you come into the room and you advise on what are the technical parameters that you have expertise on, but the mm. price of being an expert is that you do not get to be an individual. You're fulfilling mm. a role within an organizational structure. And Chapin writes about this kind of in a broad sense as a move that has happened generally in, in policy um, and I think it's something that you can see where I'm just thinking of a great example from from more recently would be our COVID press conferences where you have your chief medical officer um, we had Kerry Chant in New South Wales who would yeah. stand up and give a technical medical report but was not allowed to comment on matters of policy because there yeah. was a division there that occurred and of course, mm. there are all sorts of reasons why you do that. But mm. the, the question that Shapen raises um, in his work is, well, if you have that situation, and, and to be clear, this is not just an, an academic who comes up with this. Lots of people think this way is if mm. you divide down these lines between um, institutionalized technical experts, then whose job is it to think about right those questions um, you've yeah. kind of structured those questions or structured those problems out of existence in a sense but by, by putting all of these processes in place and I think it's something that's very hard to solve but um, yeah. I don't know do, do you have anything to throw in there because now I'm rambling <laughs> well I, I do I think that's a very relevant um, issue a very relevant question the question of well who is responsible for the moral element of what we do and in, in the military context on operations um, part in part I wrote the paper because I felt like well it shouldn't be me but mm. I guess where I, what I concluded was that it shouldn't be, be me by myself mm. but it certainly shouldn't be me with my legal hat on so um, what I mean by that is that it's not the legal officer who's responsible for the moral element, and it's not any one individual that is responsible for the moral element, but that all of us are responsible for the moral element of it. Mm. So we all need to discuss it uh, among ourselves. And I'm proud to say that you know, on, on my deployments that that did actually happen. So um, the intelligence officers, the commanders, the, the intelligence analysts, the um, targeteers, the pilots, um, logisticians, everyone were involved at one point or another in, in some ethical discussions about, about what we were doing, um, which is great. And, and they confirmed to me um, that they didn't need me, a lot of them, on occasion, as I say, I had troops and others coming to me saying, is this right or wrong? But for the most part, um, it was clear to me that they didn't need me to make moral decisions on their behalf. And I didn't want to make moral decisions on, on their behalf. And so, um, you know, what one example, and I can't be at all specific about this, I'll keep this as generic as possible, but our aircraft flying over the top of an area where there are coalition warships. The coalition warships, so, so not ours, other warships, the coalition warships were worried about attacks from a third nation. So a nation at which we were not at war. Hmm. So the coalition warships called on our aircraft for support. 
Now, it's a diff difficult scenario um, because on the one hand, if we, if our pilots do intervene, then they potentially embroil Australia in a conflict with a third nation with which we didn't previously have a conflict. Mm. So that would be a very bad thing if they did that. But on the other hand, if they didn't step in to assist a coalition warship and that warship was maybe, um, you know, potentially if a, if a military aircraft, a fighter aircraft from another nation uh, fired missiles at a warship, it could destroy the warship. That's, that's one scenario and hundreds of lives would be lost. And the question from an ally would be, you were there, Australia, and we called on you and you didn't help. Um, and so the question was, uh, to me as a legal officer, what's our legal position? Can we, can we intervene? Can we respond to that call? And that, at that time, we didn't have a clear answer to that as a matter of law. Um, and they didn't, the, the pilots didn't, you know, expect me to um, then engage in the the moral issue of whether they should or not. They accepted that that was their their decision in in the circumstances. Um, mm. You know, they they prevailed on me to get send something up the chain of command and get an answer as soon as possible. But until then, um, it was something they had to take on their shoulders. Uh, and and so those are the sorts of things that on occasion have to be discussed among people. And I think a shared sense of what is the morally responsible thing to do or, or not do. This is probably a very, uh, what's the word, uninformed question, but to what extent is it possible for a pilot, say in that situation, to decide, I don't think this is a moral thing to do and to refuse to fly if they've ordered to do so? Right, so that, that is a um, tricky situation, and I, and I do talk a little bit about that in the paper as well. Um, mm. So there's a difference, I think, between um, your base moral code, if you like, and qualms that you have about a situation that are more about application of your base moral code to a particular situation. And, and when it comes to how those apply to a particular situation, it can be tricky to know, you know, mm. is, is this the correct way to interpret the circumstances? Is, is this the correct way to apply um, my base moral code? Mm. So I would say if you're in the, the realm of just application and thinking about qualms that you have about application, then I think there's a broader duty that you need to take into account. And that broader duty is that the Australian people, and it's the same in any nation, the Australian people have elected representatives. Those representatives, the politicians, have called on the military to go and deploy. Mm. And it would undermine not only an effective military, but a democracy if people in the military were to make their own minds up about you know, whether they're going to prosecute a, an attack or not. Um, if, if we're just talking about qualms, then, you know, click your heels together, um, salute and carry on and do what you've been told to do. Mm -hmm. um, but discuss it. Discuss it by all means with, with other people. 
but there is a point at which um, there something might uh, offend your base moral code, and then I think there is a duty to 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 take a stand and say this point no further. Um, mm. And that's why we have, for example, the defense of superior orders. And sometimes people get the wrong idea about the defense of superior orders. You know, they'll say, wasn't that in the, the Nuremberg war crimes tribunals and it was rejected? Well, in a sense, yes, it was rejected there, but that was due to the circumstances. They were essentially saying your will was not overborne. You still had a choice. Mm. So the, the, the modern defense of superior orders is more about um, could we expect you to understand all of the circumstances in the situation, all of the factors in the situation? And in most circumstances, we can't expect them to know all the circumstances, nor can we expect people who haven't practiced law to understand all the legal complexities. Um, so in most circumstances, you comply with the orders that you're given. But in some circumstances, even with all the legal complexities, even with maybe not knowing all the circumstances, when you're asked to, for example, shoot a defenceless child, then that's manifestly unlawful. And um, you're going to be responsible when the defense of superior orders is not going to get you anywhere. Um, so that's, that's where the defense of superior orders comes in. Um, again, I, I think I may have digressed, but... <laughs> Well, I don't think you've digressed at all here because what we're getting at here is maybe that there's a sense of, I don't, feel free to tell me I'm wrong here, but in some ways, if, if I was in this position of being one of these pilots, there's almost an incentive to maintain some ignorance um, and not think about things too hard. And I, I wonder within the situations that you're describing here, whether in some senses, the structures are such that, that nobody can really think about these questions individually and collectively it is difficult when you're a cog in a machine to know what mm. the full machine is doing and in some ways it's in the interests of the machine that the, the cogs you know do their their bit so then i suppose it falls to those at the top who have that oversight to to think about those decisions and that includes the political side of it too but do you think that's a fair assessment? Um, yeah, sorry, I, I sort of um, missed something there. Could you? <laughs> could you well, I suppose what I'm trying to get at is there's, a, there's the question of is and there's the question of ought, and the two are yeah. very different. But if we think yeah. about just the is, then maybe it is the case that it is difficult for individuals who are... Uh, unaware of circumstances right to actually engage on moral questions um mm. and in some ways as an individual you might think well maybe it's futile to try mm. and therefore what is the case is that that moral responsibility or the the responsibility for thinking about it falls to the people at the very top who right. would have that ability to do so but yeah. perhaps by virtue of their technical roles, I mean, you know, a role to advise just on the legal matters or just on intelligence or just on strategy or just on tactics, perhaps because it's divided up in that way, the question does get avoided um, yes. in a sense. And maybe then it is the political class who have that obligation. 
Yeah, well, um, uh, so there there are, it depends on the context. And I think yeah. there, are, there are people who are in a better context to think deeply about the moral issues than, than the pilots, for example. And, and you specifically asked about pilots. So pilots, for example, talk about a concept of crew resource management or, or the workload, including the cognitive workload that they're under mm. when they're actually flying an aircraft. So, you know, potentially they could be pulling high G manoeuvres and um, it's a pity there's no going to be no video for this because pilots will always have hands going, representing planes and high <laughs> G manoeuvres. Um, but when they're pulling high G manoeuvres, thinking about, you know, their next move after that, thinking about uh, surface-to-air missiles and, and making sure they're not going to be hit by surface-to-air missiles, thinking about where their wingman is, thinking about how to get the right profile to release a weapon so that it's going to hit the target correctly, thinking about their rules of engagement. There's not a lot of cognitive space to think about, um, you know, the moral, to, to, to think deeply about the moral and ethical issues. Um, but I think that uh, the military does need to encourage people and to facilitate um, critical thinking, critical moral and ethical thinking, uh, and not only um, facilitate that in individuals, provide context in which that can happen as well. And, and one of the... Um, one of the potential outcomes of failing to do so is 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 not just uh, you know circumstances such as those that have been the subject of the IGADF in, um, Afghanistan inquiry report, the Brereton report, but also um, moral injury. So the yeah. the idea that people come back from um, a operational campaign, an operational deployment, I should say. And, um, and only then begin to reconcile what they did with their base moral code and think, mm. well, the two don't sort of match up. And if you can provide people with a context in which to think more deeply about those at the time, not in the cockpit as the pilot is, you know, making a decision about whether to release a weapon or not, but some other context, then, then that would be an important thing and a very useful thing, I think. Um, but in the absence, well, not just in the absence of that, I, I, I think you're right. I think that the people at the highest levels do tend to have a better context to think about that sort of thing, that they're, they're not under the same time pressures. They have more of an overview, if you like. Um, but on the other hand, you know, maybe being close to the circumstances and it being very raw and immediate is is also important as well so um i guess what i would say is it depends on the context a classic a classic legal response <laughs> yes <laughs> you've done us proud duncan yes <laughs> well we should probably finish up soon so i think there's something in there about the way that we instrumentalize individuals and there is a cost to that because when the individual finishes being used as an instrument, they return to being an, an individual. Mm. Um, and, and maybe that's that's a way of thinking about it as well. But certainly, I mean, I'm, I'm a big proponent of 
thinking about all of these issues um, and in the space sector as well to go on maybe a final digression. Yes. Um, there are so many people who, who go into the space sector thinking that it will be one thing um, and discovering that maybe they're working on dual use or maybe they're working on military applicable technology or maybe they're just working on military technology. And there's, there's value to thinking through these things before you're yeah. at the point of, um, as you say, being in the middle of a high G maneuver. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, thinking about this, the about our podcast before we actually did it, uh, I was um, there is a something from the International Committee of the Red Cross. They do a commentary on um, additional Protocol One, the Geneva Conventions generally, mm. um, and there's a bit in there that um, is very relevant to the space arms race. Um, and I just wanted to read you this extract. It'll take a minute or so. Um, but essentially it says all predictions agree that if man does not master technology but allows it to master him, he will be destroyed by technology. Forgive the gendered language. That's, I think that's the end of it. But it goes on to say, now, is it not the uncontrolled rate of technological development for its own sake, much more than the real needs of security, which is primarily responsible for the escalation of the arms race? Technological progress necessarily implies a certain fait accompli, which opens the way for new military applications, even when the research was originally oriented towards peaceful ends. Mm. Thus, new weapons discovered inadvertently in this way have been adopted for the sole reason that they exist or because of a fear that others will develop them. Only governments are in a position to watch constantly, as they should each in its own country, the outcome of such technical progress. They may then identify those factors which contribute to escalation and ask themselves how such escalation can take place despite external constraints and notwithstanding the fact that it paralyzes the efforts of those who seek greater wisdom and humanity. So that was written in 1987 and it's, it's about, um, uh, an obligation to do legal reviews of new weapons, means and methods of warfare. But I think it's indicative of the fact that if you're involved in any sort of in industry where there might be dual use, I think there is a, a moral responsibility to, to consider um, how these things could be uh, used and not just be swept up in um, technological pro progress and think, well, you know, I can't control that. It's out of my hands. Mm -hmm. um, no, I think that that people ought to uh, talk with one another at the very least and find a context in which they can say, this, this is not right and this is not appropriate. Indeed. I'm not a high priest in a secular military. <laughs> Duncan, this has been great. I'm going to finish up. Um, thank you so much. This, it's been such a great discussion. I've really enjoyed it, actually. And I'm going to go and read your paper yet again and um, find new things in it again. I really recommend to listeners to uh, go and go and read it. I'll link it in the show notes. It's not a long read, um, but it's a very worthwhile read. And I think it's important that as you say, that as individuals, we recognize our humanity and we we think about these things. And even though, um, you know, someone like me, I'm not directly involved and I haven't been called upon to do the sorts of things that 
people in the armed forces are called upon to do. Um, and I don't like to, you know, well, I can only imagine. So um, I think it's really important that we all think about it and have some empathy and consider it uh, as part of our shared humanity and recognition that we all live within a state that has these sorts of functions to it. Absolutely. Duncan, is there anything you wanted to say? Where can people look you up? Um, any any further thoughts and before we finish? Uh, well, so I am I'm working on my own PhD, and I know that uh, you've you've recently submitted your thesis. Well done, congratulations. Um, so I'm I'm sometime behind you. Um, I'm hoping to submit in in June, and then I will be more active than I have been. Um, I look out as well for the Woomera Manual. It's a project that I've been heavily involved in. So the Woomera Manual on International Law Applicable to Military Space Activities. Um, that we expect that will be published uh, probably in, in 2023, and it will be pretty important. Um, but uh, yeah, probably not until um, middle of next year. I, I'm not likely to be very active until the middle of next year. All right, you've heard it here. Bother Duncan after June next year and maybe give it a couple of extra months, just speaking from experience. Yes. I was convinced that I'd have it in a good 10 months before it actually went in. So, um, so we'll see. But no, this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you for making time. And I hope you have a lovely afternoon. You too, you too. See you later. You've been listening to Space Junk. As always, you can follow me on Annie Handmer on all the socials. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you.